Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, it's Claire here. You're used to hearing me on Money Clinic, but now you can find me in your inbox, teaching you everything you need to know about money with my new Sort Your Financial Life Out course. Over six weeks, I'll help you to make smarter money decisions with tips on budgeting, tax breaks, property, pay rises and investing. In short, everything you wanted to know about managing your money, but were far too busy to ask. To find out more and sign up for the course, visit ft.com slash money course. That's ft.com slash money course. If you're new to investing... The starting move suggested by many financial experts is investing in a global equity index fund. It's an easy and cheap way of making a diversified choice, buying one investment that will track the performance of hundreds of the world's biggest companies. But if you've ever thought, what actually are the companies around the world that I own a tiny slice of, then today's investment masterclass in global equities is for you. As we'll find out, the so-called Magnificent Seven make up a huge slice of global tracker funds. They've had a blistering year, but can it continue? This is the thing which really worries me, that they've all gone up together. Mm. And when a load of things go up together, they tend to go down together. Welcome to Money Clinic, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's consumer editor. My guest on today's Investment Masterclass will be a familiar name to any of you who read the money section in the FT Weekend newspaper every Saturday. Simon Edelson's columns about investing in global equities are an education in themselves. Whether you're an experienced investor or a total novice, there's always something interesting to learn. And that's why I signed him up for today's Masterclass. Simon, welcome to Money Clinic. Claire, thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm so excited to introduce you to listeners because we chat on the phone an awful lot about different stories in the news. And you've worked as a fund manager in the City of London for much of the past 40 years, investing, fair to say, tens of millions of pounds worth of investors' money and travelling all around the world to find the best global companies to invest that money in and grow it. I mean, what a life. Tell us about it. Yes. Well, it ha has been extraordinary. As, as you say, I started in the city in 1984, 
which is before what is called Big Bang. And Mrs. Thatcher was uh, the prime minister and she decided to get rid of some of the old school practices in the city. So I started off working for a stockbroker. In fact, my first job interview, I briefly worked for the BBC and they said, are there any perks that you get that we'd need to replace if we give you this job as a stockbroker? And I said, well, I... I used to get a free copy of the Radio Times. They said, oh, we can't stretch to that. (laughs) Um, But instead of that, they did give, as people used to give their clerks in the Edwardian area, they did give you a free turkey at Christmas that you could pick up. So it was a totally different world, very male-dominated, a fair number of bowler hats, an awful lot of smoking and drinking. In its birth stages, there was almost no valuation done of shares. People would know what the companies did. They'd often know the people on the boards of the companies because they'd uh, they were mates or they'd been at school with them. They knew what the dividend yield of the companies was because that was one of the pieces of public information. But things like dividing the share price by the earnings of the company was just starting to be understood. Uh, so during my lifetime, starting as a stockbroker at Phillips and Drew mainly, and then going through to running global equities um, since 2000, one of the things I've observed is different schools of thought about how to value shares taking over globally. I mean, this is not just a UK phenomenon. And I'm very much brought up in the school that any share you buy, you start off by trying to work out whether a company is a good company or a bad company. But it's critical also to work out whether the share price of that company is cheap or expensive at any point in time. You can't just go from, I think this is a great company to, therefore I should buy it. Because if it's already very expensive, there's not much point. Now... Your monthly column in the FT about investing, you've been doing that for some years now. But Simon, whenever I read it, I always learn something that I didn't know. So at the top of the show, what are the lessons that you're keenest to pass on to Money Clinic listeners today? The absolute key thing for me is quite what a privilege it is to be allowed to buy shares at all. And you you actually end up owning a bit of this company and you're sitting there looking at your share certificate or looking at your statement and there are all these people running around working like fury trying to make you wealthier. I mean, it, it is the most extraordinary privilege. It's also something of an obligation that, you know, you are part owner of the business. You have a vote. You can you can write letters to the company saying whether you approve of what they're doing or not. You You can turn up. Your vote may be a very small vote, but it's still... I think, correct to take it seriously. You're part owner of a business that the management are employed to run on your behalf. And and that's the setup. So I I do think owning equities is a great privilege and also a fantastic way of saving money compared with any other way. I can't imagine why anyone would want to invest much of their money in things like government bonds, which are rather dull (laughs) instruments or or let alone anything like Bitcoin or anything like that. Why not own a part of a real business run by real people, which exists in the real world? And and the other amazing thing about businesses is you start reading their history and you realize businesses survive wars, they Mm -hmm. survive changes of government, they survive what are called financial crises. I mean, not all of them, but an awful lot of British businesses, you go and check them out, they've been going for 200 years, They, they toddle along. And it's because of those... Clever people sitting there trying to run them, trying to look after the shareholders and the staff and the customers uh, and all the hard work they put in to try to make sure these businesses survive. Mm. This is a much more active 
approach to investing listeners than you may be used to if you have got mostly passive global equity index trackers in your portfolio. But I'm excited to get cracking. But before we do, an important disclaimer, we are going to be talking about the merits and otherwise of investing in different shares on the show today, but the usual rules apply. Nothing we say should be interpreted as an endorsement or recommendation to buy a particular stock. You need to do your own research. And it goes without saying, when you invest money in the stock market, your capital is at risk. Now, Simon, just because you've stepped away from the world of fund management. It doesn't mean that you're going to stop investing, of course. And for the last 20 years of your career, you have been very, very focused on these big, gigantic, global companies. Why do you think that big is beautiful? Uh, Well, I used to think that big was beautiful until it got very, very big. So I launched the Artemis Global Select Fund, I think, 12 years ago now. And the companies which currently dominate the global equity market were all listed. They were all doing quite well. And they were on quite, they were, they were more expensive than the average stock in the world. But you shouldn't be surprised that they were. Companies Mm. like Apple and Microsoft and Amazon were fairly well known as being very profitable, certainly well known as being very high growth. Um, But what's happened over the last 12 years is that these, these companies really dominated performance of all equity markets. And now for the index tracker funds, which just buy exactly the number of shares that there are in the index, those companies, they're called the Magnificent Seven. For the record, that's Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, Alphabet, Meta, Amazon and Tesla. You add them all up, starting with Apple, which is 5% of the world's market capitalization. So 5% of all your money going into a tracker fund goes into Apple, and then about 3%, I think, into Microsoft and Google and so on and so forth. You end up with 26%, I think, of all your money going into one one group of stocks, all of which are very fine companies, most of which don't really give you a vote (coughs) because they're often controlled, all of which are very correlated. And this is the thing which really worries me, that they've all gone up together Mm. and when a load of things go up together, they tend to go down together. You mentioned earlier the great thing about a global tracker fund was that you could have a diversification of the best companies around the world. That was true 12 years ago. Today, you don't get so much diversification. You get an awful lot of American tech stocks and then really not very much of the other things that balance a portfolio out and which I think are essential, particularly now that inflation's back and dogging us, which has not been a big feature of the last 12 years. Mm. On a more positive notes, the reason that Microsoft has been in the news so much over the past few weeks is because of open AI. Now, the technology world is moving into the next phase with with AI, artificial intelligence. It's going to be a really big part of the story going forwards. And Microsoft is keen to claim its share of the spoils. Uh, uh, More than its share. I I think the market is quite rightly convinced that Microsoft has got further down the track on commercializing artificial intelligence. And for Microsoft to find itself at the cutting edge of this is is a great credit to them and their management. I mean, because there are other companies like Google who I think people would have expected to have been at the forefront and they seem slightly behind at the moment. Now, what do you think the big global themes are going to be for the next few years, the next decade, that will be of supreme importance for investors. No doubt inflation is one. Yes, I'm afraid inflation has a habit of sticking around. And so 
looking for equities which can cope with inflation is rather different from looking for equities which enjoy almost zero interest rates, which is the unusual situation, if you like, was the last 10 years where interest rates were practically nothing. But people have got very used to that. So there's there's quite a big adjustment, I think, still to come. Mm. And how about climate change? I mean, that's an issue that really bothers many money clinic listeners. But of course, they also want to make a return. Yes. So in my global equity fund, we, we had quite a large chunk of the money dedicated to businesses which help with energy transition. But I'm afraid one of the tricky things about investing is that you do have to keep an eye on the relationship between the government and private capital. I'm afraid that the returns in the industry have started going down now that government's pushing taxpayers' capital <laughs> into, into the wind farm. So the last thing you saw was no private company, just as government saying, we're going to go and do all this, we're going to do net zero, we're going to force it all through. What's happened on the other side of this, I'm afraid, which is an unintended consequence, but does happen a lot, is businesses retreat. They say, we, we can't invest our shareholders' money in this if government's going to insist that we don't make a good return out of it. If the government wants to do it taxpayers' money, that's fine. But don't expect us to turn up. So mm. you know, notice, nobody bid for any of the offshore licenses. So, you know, hopefully energy transition carries on. I think it's quite clear that a lot of the promises made about the speed of it were fantasy. There wasn't proper planning. This is a massive job to do. It will take decades. But trying to make money out of it in equities, I'm afraid, requires an awful lot of careful analysis. So when it comes to investment strategy, you often hear investors say that they are a growth investor or a value investor. Now, markets are a bit of a turning point, as you said, with interest rates, inflation. Could we be seeing a bit of a turning point between growth and value um, as an investment strategy? Tell us a little bit about what, what they are. Yes, yeah, so growth stocks, which include the mag so-called Magnificent Seven, these technology stocks, They've done fantastically well during a period of very low interest rates and inflation. And they've ended up on very high valuations, to my mind. When you have persistent inflation, companies with more hard assets often protect your savings against inflation a bit better. It doesn't make them growth stocks. It just means that, in my view, a little bit more of your portfolio might be allocated to companies which have real assets, where the value of those real assets will go up. Give us some examples. So the classic examples here are companies like property companies. Very out of favour at the moment. Which everyone, not, not just out of favour, but almost nobody talks about them anymore. But for anyone who remembers the 1970s, where there was much worse inflation than we've had today, as long as your property didn't go bust, and a lot of property companies were very indebted in the late 60s, and many of them did go bust. But the ones who survived or even just house prices, kept up with inflation perfectly well. Um, so it is quite intriguing to me that the tech companies are at an all-time high on valuation and share price and have done nothing but go up for 12 years. And property companies have collapsed in value. Any other areas of the market that you would classify as a value investment that investors have been um, a bit neglectful of in the last decade? The best area in the world for value investing by far is Japanese equities. Oh. And Japan, of course, hasn't had inflation. It's had deflation. 
but now they have a bit less deflation and possibly a bit of inflation. That's very exciting for Japan that it may come out of the slump it's been in since the 1980s. So again, Japanese companies are starting to reorganize themselves, raise their their profitability. You get a lot of company for your money. That's how I like to think about it. You get a lot of company from your money. I like that, Simon. Now, even if listeners don't want to stock pick or choose shares and in individual companies to have in their personal portfolio, you still think that there's a benefit of knowing how a fund manager like you would run the rule over these companies and say whether you think they're cheap, expensive, whether they've got a future, whether they're worth hanging on to. Absolutely. Whenever I buy a share, the way I was brought up to think about it is whenever you buy a share, you're taking your own money out of the bank and you've got to feel some comfort that that share price you're paying is supported by some sort of long-term value. That value might be from assets, as in the case of a property company, that's a a value investor way of looking at it, or it may be from earnings. Most often it is from earnings. Mm, The profits of a company. Yeah. And so if, like me, you, you believe that the share price has to be paid back out of those profits over the next decade or two. I'm afraid adjusted for inflation, which is where it gets a little bit more complicated. Then you look at the relationship between the share price and and the underlying cash flow. Now, companies unfortunately do not produce cleaned up cash flow per share figures. What they produce is something else called earnings per share figures. EPS. Which is not quite the same thing. But it's close. It's certainly a very good starting place. And it's certainly where I would start whenever I'm uh, looking at whether a company is good value for money or not. I should just add on the other place to look, which I know a lot of investors are interested in, is part of those earnings are paid out as an annual dividend. Mm, Like a profit share. Exactly. So you can also look at the dividend yield. In fact, not just look at it, you can receive the dividend yield, i.e. if you're a shareholder, that that dividend will get paid into your bank account. And so it's real money. It's not just mm. something announced by accountants. And just to do the maths on that, so say a share of a company costs one pound, yeah. they declare a dividend of six pence for the year, and that's, that's paid to you, that would be a dividend yield of? Six percent. Exactly. So it's similar to interest in a bank account, the way that that is calculated, but just applied differently. Okay. Well, I've got some really great questions that listeners have sent in to um, put to you, Simon. Now, the first one from Financial Planning Jim via Instagram, he says, does Simon believe that ordinary investors should be putting their money with active managers? In the vast majority of cases, a passive global equity tracker is going to give them a better outcome over the long term, studies show. Yes, I I completely understand why investors buy tracker funds. The one thing you know about a tracker fund is that the annual fees will be much, much lower than for an active manager. So an active manager has to prove that he can beat a tracker fund for you to get a better return after those fees. And the only thing in life which is certain is investment management fees and death, I suppose. (laughs) That would be the Mark Twain type quote. And trying to find an active manager who you're confident will beat the index is very difficult. That said, going back to some of the remarks I've made earlier, I do think a tracker fund is not the whole of a solution these days, just because the index itself, which you are buying, seems to me to be quite unbalanced. But that's just my opinion. And so uh, I think that one can get better diversification. And I think people do understand diversification, even though they may find it difficult to build it in for themselves. 
So it could make sense at the moment if you just want to buy tracker funds, not have all of it in a global equity tracker fund or a US equity tracker fund, which is where that imbalance is really strongest. Uh, but to spread the money around with a, probably with a little bit more in the a UK tracker fund or possibly even a Japanese fund where, where the value for money is much better. Well, funny you should say that, Simon, because our next few questions reflect that exact anxiety. We've got Sarka, who has asked via Instagram, how can I best diversify away from the Magnificent Seven but stay in US stocks? And Sam C on Instagram, who says, how can I ensure my portfolio is properly balanced across geographies and industries when so many global funds are really heavily weighted towards the US? Yes. Uh, so, well, on the second question, you have to find a uh, active manager who looks for better value for money. If they are looking for companies which have more current cash earnings compared with the share prices, you would expect them to have less in the US than they used to have. If they haven't, then they're probably not doing that active management job of looking for value for money as, as much as you expect them to. But there are many active managers. I'm sure that you'll be able to find some which are less heavily weighted towards the the big 10 global stocks. The other thing is, by the way, all fund managers, all active fund managers have to show their top 10 holdings. Mm, on the fund fact sheet. On the fund fact sheet. So if the top 10 holdings look suspiciously like the biggest stocks in the index, then you're not getting very much active fund management. And you'll find some are, and uh, quite a few aren't. But, but it's not difficult to find people who are doing active management, particularly at the smaller houses, the, the less well-known houses, where where the fund manager isn't trying to run ridiculously large amounts of money. I think that this is another key point. So some of the boutique fund management names make it easier for an active fund manager to be really active. Whereas if you're working for one of the world's biggest fund management companies, it's very difficult to put that sort of money into the market without earning huge amounts, Microsoft and Apple, because you're trying to run so much money, you've got to put it somewhere. So you end up earning these, these enormous stocks, whether you think they're good or not. Um, the first question you had, though, is much harder for me to answer. Trying to stick with America without the magnificent Steven, the normal way of doing this would be to uh, think about buying a U.S. smaller company fund. Okay. Smaller companies in America, by the way, generally defined as any company up to, I think, some definitions take it up to 50 billion, which make them oh, big, bigger me. than the biggest companies in the UK. So these these are not minnows. They're not so a US smaller company fund is not like a UK smaller company, mm. which is really small. But all the same, there is a reasonable chance that the American economy will have a bit of a slowdown, that it's not over the inflation, that interest rates may stay up. You've just got an election coming up. And U.S. smaller companies are not that cheap compared with smaller mid-caps around the rest of the world. But that's the classic way of doing it. You get more mid-caps, what I'd call a mid-cap, and less big-caps by switching. Some of these funds are related to the Russell Index rather than the Standard & Poor's Index. Generally, they're called a U.S. smaller, smaller company fund, but uh, some of them will be called Russell-related funds or Russell trackers, of course. Okay, well, that's um, something for listeners to look into. The subject of fees we've spoken about before. Now, obviously, you are paying more for an active fund, and it's no guarantee that a higher fee means better performance, as I'm sure many listeners would have found out. Do you think that the investment industry is due a bit of a wake-up call on the fees that active funds are charging? Yes, I'm afraid this may sound a bit like a gamekeeper-turned-poacher, but I do think that uh, fund management fees should be coming down, not just are coming down, they should be coming down. 
Uh, they've come down a lot in my career. 20 years ago, a lot of British unit trusts were sold with a 1.5% management fee. These days, most people have an I-class unit, which most people can access, which uh, will charge about 75 basis points per annum on a global equity fund, sometimes a bit more on a smaller company fund. The trouble is that the amount of outperformance of the active fund managers over the last three years just hasn't been good enough on average to justify that. And so I, I think not surprisingly, an awful lot of retail investors are shifting to passive funds. As I said earlier, I think I can understand why I think it's entirely reasonable for many people to have a lot of their passive funds in their savings mix. But I do think it's wise for them to have a, an allocation to active funds because they're keeping an eye on value for money for, for you in a way in which the passive funds don't. But the fee rate people are prepared to, to, to be charged to wait for those moments when the active funds outperform has to be lower so that people are more patient. I suspect what will happen over the long term is active funds will outperform by enormous amounts, but for very short periods of time. Okay. If you see what I mean. It's a question of setting up a structure where people can... Um, people don't feel that the wrong fee is being charged while they wait. Okay. Last question for me now, I promise. Investors, we learn from our mistakes, don't we? It would be wonderful, Simon, if you could tell us about your best and worst investments in your career and what you learned from these and what Money Clinic listeners could take from this. Well, the most money I've made for investors in, in the global fund I've run for the last 12 years, and actually I own this share for most of the last 20, goodness, 25 years, is, is out of Louis Vuitton. Fantastic business, products I have no understanding of at all. I was going to say, you're more of a people. barber man. <laughs> <laughs> um, but very, very well run. Clearly, a business that is in, which has been built by a, a, a brilliant set of individuals, but out of out of something that, you know, French people are just terribly good at this stuff. And they built it out of talent and hard work and financial discipline. And it makes people happy. You know, I, I don't understand why people would go off and pay that amount of money for those goods. But people do. People do. And it's very reliable. And, you know, seeing people happy to buy your product, happy to pay a very big markup for your product, but always aspiring to do it, you know, and, and that's... That's what economic growth is really made of. And so sticking with that company through thick and thin has been has been very, very profitable indeed uh, as a large company. I think it's now the second biggest company in Europe. It was the biggest company in Europe for, for a while. Mm. It has been cheap at some points and expensive at some points, but it's never been so expensive that it's, it's felt that one needs to move away from it, really. You know? So it has been a buy and hold. Most of the best decisions are buy and hold. And on the flip side? On the flip side, unfortunately... One will always get the quality of a business wrong from time to time. And even now, 12 years after the event, I completely believed that the Yellow Pages would go onto the internet and be successful. I thought, you know, surely the Yellow Pages in the UK, which was spun out from British Telecom, became a business called Yell. I thought it should not be beyond the wit of man for all of these phone numbers and websites of all the small businesses in the UK to be put on a site called the Yellow Pages site and for people to pay advertising rates and they would have no printing costs, they wouldn't have to deliver this massive great fat book and everything would be marvellous. Anyhow, went bust. So you have to be diversified. 
because your assessment of the quality of business, you'll always get some wrong. Mm. Um, Deborah Meaden said a similar thing a few weeks ago. And and the gap between my assessment of Yell and my assessment of Louis Vuitton wasn't that big. And one's a great success and the other one's a complete, complete write-off. So that's why you should never get overconfident about any stock just in terms of your, your ability to work out where it will be in 10 or 20 years' time. Well, Simon Edelston, it's been a privilege to have you in the podcast studio. Really enjoyed talking to you about global equities. If people want to read Simon's column, we've put a free link to his latest one in today's show notes, which looks at inflation and how different companies around the world are learning to handle it. That's it for this episode of Money Clinic with me, Claire Barrett, and we hope you like what you've heard. If you did, spread the word and leave us a review. We're always looking to chat with people about their money issues for the show. If you're interested in being part of a future episode and want some expert money advice, then just email us. Our address is money at ft.com. You could also take a peek at our website, ft.com slash money, grab a copy of the FT Weekend newspaper on Saturdays, or follow me on Instagram. I'm at Claire B. Money Clinic was produced in London by Philippa Goodrich. Our editor is Manuela Saragossa. Sound design is by Breen Turner, and you heard original tunes this week by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. And finally, as I said before, the Money Clinic podcast is a general discussion around financial topics and does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you'll need to find an independent financial advisor. That's all the small print for now. See you back here next week. Goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.